Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. We live in dark times. When some years back on the horizon, we first spotted Pauline Hansen. Sarah Palin, Marine Le Pen, we could tell that the ground was shifting. But I really don't think that we grasp the enormity of the historical shift which they represented. I'm not even sure that we can grasp it now. A right-wing, ethnically-centred populism was emergent. That much was clear. But we can now see that the intoxicating image of our epoch, Trump's wall, as yet unbuilt, the Mexicans still refusing to pay for Trump's wall, we can see that this dominates the lives we and countless others have to leave in our present predicament. But the wall, whether it's ever built or not, is only part of the issue. Symbolically, walls are going up everywhere. They (coughs) mark the modern times in which we live. But more than that, when we spotted these right-wing ideologues on the horizon, (coughs) in a strange paradox, we can see now that their emergence presaged what Hannah Arendt calls the destruction of politics. By this, she meant, and I mean, the destruction of that dimension of public life in which political uh, adversities are brokered and organised and managed. It's not that they disappear, but they are socially managed and politics allows us a means to live with our enemies. What's happening now, I fear, and one need look no further than the White House, is that the state is being mobilized to eliminate one's political enemies. And Hannah Arendt had a term for this with with which we are all familiar, and that was totalitarianism. Uh, I'm going to be I'm not going to be talking about the folk I mentioned, but these are going to be at the back of mind as I talk parochially about little England, my own little England. Um, And I try to come to terms with the imperatives of living in England in these dark times. I have one final introductory remark to make. It's an apology. Why is it lecturers always begin with, or English lecturers always begin with an apology? <coughs> My talk will be short on levity and humour. <laughs> I didn't wish this to happen. I don't think it should happen, because actually, in these times, levity and humour are very important public forms of conviviality and being together. And if one wants to go, Upmarket, one can think of the crucial work of the Russian linguist uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, who saw in laughter 
the means to puncture the pretensions of epic. So there is indeed a place for laughter. Or there's another way of putting this, a more polemical way. I would ask you to try and think when you last saw Donald Trump laughing. <laughs> he doesn't. However, <coughs> uh, I'll begin elsewhere. Imagine you're a Londoner on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 28th of May, 1940. You're on the underground, on the tube, in St. James's, heading towards Westminster. It's wartime, and London is a city of sirens, soldiers, and sandbags. The carriage door slides open, and Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, enters wearing his huge three-piece suit, his spotted bow tie, Homburg hat, and a large Havana cigar to hand. While he maintains his class authority, it's readily apparent that he's ignorant of the question of the customs required for traveling on the underground. At the outside, he is like an unknown specious being, barely even a Londoner. At first, the passengers are nonplussed. They're unaccustomed to sharing their carriage with such an exalted figure. After Churchill exchanges goodwill banter, obtains a light, starts puffing on a cigar, he settles down to business. However, he doesn't ask directly what he should do. Yet this question could not have been more pressing. He had only recently become Prime Minister, three weeks beforehand, having um, replaced Neville Chamberlain. Large numbers of his, of his party are openly hostile to him. Everyone, everyone in Westminster is doubtful about his judgment. At the very moment, the appeasers in his own cabinet are pressing for negotiations with Nazi Germany. <clears throat> his intimates and those he can trust are few. The previous night, George VI, the king, breaking formalities paid an unannounced nocturnal visit to Churchill to give him succor in this time of crisis. Initially, the king had been very doubtful about the wherewithal of Churchill to govern. Churchill on this occasion, on the evening of the 27th, Churchill on this occasion has to confess to the king that without the support of his party, he doubts very much that he can beat the appeasers. For the king, in the three weeks that Churchill has been prime minister, his hostility to Churchill has lessened. He's come to give him support in his titanic struggle for the sake of the nation. Beat the buggers, he tells his first minister. He goes on to counsel him. Go to the people. Let them instruct you. Quite silently, they usually do. Tell them the truth unvarnished. <clears throat> Clementine, Churchill's wife, urges him to maintain his resolve. Other, otherwise, aside from the monarch and his wife, he is on his own. He is a man burdened by the enormity of the historic task confronting him. He's alone and faltering. History weighs heavily on him. The choice before him is whether to strike a deal with Germany 
in the hope of salvaging something of nation and empire, or whether to struggle on against a mighty enemy. A vast component of the British Army is stranded at Dunkirk in northern Belgium, some quarter of a million of British personnel, and half that number again of Allied soldiers. They await annihilation. The threat of Nazi invasion comes ever closer. If Germany did cross the Channel, they would arrive in a Britain in which there was no army to defend. At this juncture, Churchill is almost on the point of wavering. He's then on the underground in London. He announces, as only Churchill can announce, you have to imagine the tone of voice. You are the British people. What is your mood? They gather in close. Churchill quizzes a number of them, taking their names and their viewpoints. To a person, his co-travellers vow that were they to face invasion, they would fight. One declares that if necessary, she would seize a broom handle and go and attack the tanks. <clears throat> Another insists that the job was to fight the fascists. Would you give up? Inquires, inquires the Prime Minister. Never, comes the reply. The individual passengers transmuting into a collective chorus as never turns into a crescendo. A young girl looks him in the eye and speaks softly but firmly. Never, never, never. Churchill, he was a sentimental man, visibly moved, begins silently to weep. He begins to recite a passage from Lord Macaulay. I suspect the older of us here will recognize the name. The younger won't have a clue. He recites from the, the Macaulay's epic poem, Horatius, Horatius on the Bridge, well known to men and women and children of the time. At which point, a passenger close to Winston Churchill, Marcus Peters, speaks out. He's the lone non-white person in the carriage. He's young, most likely West Indian. He's very stylish, but not as the English of that generation would put it, loud. They will never take Piccadilly, had been his resounding intervention in the earlier chorus, said with a broad man about, about town smile. He, that black colonial, finishes off the Macaulay poem uh, from Winston Churchill. As the poem comes to an end and the train comes to Westminster, the Prime Minister is silently weeping, apologising to his new intimates as he does so. Westminster, he announces, my stop. He alights, heads for the House of Commons, his resilience fortified by the English people. He's ready to attend to the quizlings within his own ranks, and he's ready, too, for the larger battle. And he speaks these words, we shall never surrender. The entire episode is historic in dramatic, epic mode, although understated in a conventionally English manner of the period. Yet you won't be surprised to hear that none of this happened. <laughs> or if it did, 
not as represented here, not on this day, nor in this sequence. The British people in this rendition only ever existed as a digitally contrived representation. It represents a brief scene in a recent film about Winston Churchill in May 1940 called Darkest Hour. I believe it's released here, and some of you may have seen it. It's a 21st century memory, assiduously fabricated of an old history. But where does it come from, and what does it mean? I have to move tact at this moment, um, and I warn some of you of a nervous disposition, but I will be moving on to a public figure in Britain by the name of Boris Johnson. <laughs> Some while before the film was released, the Conservative MP, Boris Johnson, or as I should say, his correct name, Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, <laughs> completed his second stint as mayor, and he was, look on, he was on the lookout for further opportunities to expand his political and financial assets. The term Brexit was hardly yet um, known. His commitments to the European Union were eccentric. He'd been fired from the Times newspaper in 1989 for, being fast and for playing fast and loose with the truth. He'd been, he was then employed by the Daily Telegraph, a notoriously right-wing newspaper in Britain, as a Brussels correspondent. And there he passed his time by concocting fabricated stories on the irrationalities of the European Union. They weren't all fabricated. The arrival of Boris Johnson, writes the politician Dennis McLean, clearly no fan. The arrival of Boris Johnson was the moment when telling lies about Europe became official British newspaper policy. At some point, either before or during this period, it came to Boris Johnson with time on, his hand, time on his hands, he was mayor of London, you'd thought that would give him enough to do, <laughs> that he should write a biography of Winston Churchill. So, the Churchill factor, how one man made history, appeared in 2014 to predictable fanfares in the conservative press. For four years, I decided I couldn't possibly read the book. <laughs> but then the moment arrived when I realized I couldn't possibly not read the bloody book. <clears throat> the persona of Churchill projected in the biography is not far, as you might expect, from the author's own alter ego. Churchill is presented as blokishly irreverent, unique in his populist uh, feel for the instincts of the people, of the English people, and supremely possesses the will to turn history to his own ends. Johnson begins the book by saying he, Churchill, is the resounding human rebuttal to all Marxist historians who think history is the story of vast and impersonal economic forces. The point of Churchill is that one man can make all the difference, which provides a cue for Boris Johnson to clamber up on the historical stage. <laughs> Johnson chose to write this biography as an episodic love letter to the man he would like to be. <laughs> His is a prose composed from the dated argot 
of private school life of a generation or two ago, driven not by piety to the official nation, but by a cocksure, damn-it-all conception of the rights which accrue to the privileged. It's made up also of a welter of everyday cliches, and that's all woven in with allusions to the classical education he had received at Eton and at Oxford University. His is a high-speed high style which rocks along, the author zipping past out of reach of the reader and disappearing in the blur. The consistency of the story lies in the fact that it is transparently shaped by Johnson's own predicament. I mean, it is the weirdest biography because it is an autobiography masquerading as a biography. <laughs> There's plenty which is sound enough recycled with panache. His Churchill really puts a foot wrong and it seems his every motive is unsullied, unsullied by anything base or profane. Yet every so often, this is Boris Johnson, every so often, tiring of the responsibilities imposed by the discipline of history, Johnson hams it up, interposing cynical provocations for the hell of it. He opens, he opens a book on the 28th of May, 1940, exactly the moment which the film Darkest Hour portrays. Churchill had met his war cabinet in the morning, uh, sorry, in the early afternoon. No consensus could be reached. He called a second meeting of the larger cabinet in the meet in, later in the afternoon, and he was in his element at this late meeting as he hadn't been earlier. It was on this occasion that Churchill claimed, if this long island story of ours is to end at last, let it end with each of us, each one of us, lying choking in his own blood upon the ground. Witnesses suggest that although there was no dissent, nor was any great outpouring of transcendent enthusiasm <laughs> from those attending the meeting. <coughs> Churchill's later recollec recollections differed fundamentally. There was, I wish I could do Churchill's accent, there was a white glow, overpowering, sublime, which ran through our island from end to end. We can't be sure why Churchill adjourned the first meeting. Johnson calls it Churchill's masterstroke. Um, he gives no evidence for this. <laughs> this is Boris Johnson now talking about why Churchill called the second meeting. The appeal to reason had failed, but the bigger the audience, the more fervid the atmosphere. And now Churchill made an appeal to the emotions. Before the full cabinet, the larger meeting in the afternoon, he made a quite astonishing speech without any hint of the intellectual restraint he had been obliged to display in the smaller meeting. It was a time for rhetoric on steroids. I don't know what that could mean. Um, now, the, the contemporary resonance of Johnson's accounts turns out in relief. The meaning of 1940 spans both past and present. The past comes to inhabit the present. A political stalemate prevails, abetted by time servers who have no fire in their belly. The man of destiny intervenes, realizing that by abiding by the norms of political conduct will do nothing to break the deadlock. 
he discovers the rational argument can't do the job either. Salvation lies in abandoning reason and intellectual restraint and in recourse to sentiment on steroids. Well, Churchill was a man of 1940. As Johnson rewrites the story for our own present time, it isn't difficult to determine who, if such a crisis were to recur, he has in mind as a saviour for our own times. The occasion he describes, May 1940, is undoubtedly of great significance, but the man of destiny imperative, which Johnson makes his own, casts a spell which he can't resist. I have no quarrel at all, and I suspect no one in the room has any quarrel with the idea that human agency and individual human agency can indeed change the course of history. It happens all the time, or if not all of the time, then much of the time. Of this, Churchill is, of course, an example. And like Johnson, I too am unreservedly thankful that things turned out as they did on the 28th of May in 1940 in London. On these grounds, there is reason to credit Churchill's political will and tactical intelligence. Yet it is quite another matter to travel from historical interpretation in this tenor to the inflated supposition that a single individual saved, Brit saved Britain, shape-shifting from one historical crisis to the next until history lay in his grasp. Or that he saved the empire, or the free world, or democracy. History is indeed what Johnson debunks. It is in part the story of vast and impersonal social forces. Certainly Churchill arrived at what most of us would think was a good decision in May 1940. Yet Churchill's politics were never driven by an allegiance to universal freedom or liberty. His deepest motivation, as he said time and time again, was safeguarding Britain's standing in the, in the, in the world. During the war, every strategic decision coming out of London had taken into account the welfare of the, of the empire. This required not discussion, because everyone took this as a given, even the majority of the Labour Party at the time. It was nothing to do with Churchill's rhetoric. It was real politic. The determination of Churchill to maintain the in integrity of the British world overrode, when necessary, the immediate practicalities of destroying the Axis powers. Just as Roosevelt and Stalin and uh, Churchill's continued exasperation, Charles de Gaulle, <laughs> they all insisted on pursuing their national interests. Churchill never won the war. Gawping at a, must at a musty room in the Palace of Westminster in the company of Boris Johnson does nothing to reveal the stupendous resources that Britain commandeered from the empire, nor the power of its fleet, let alone the presence of the big guns and the massive human power of the Red Army, nor of the seemingly infinite, limitless resources of the United States. Britain's victory in 1945 required such enormous investments that it broke the conditions which had, up until that point, sustained the empire. As he strove to defend the empire, Churchill unwittingly, in the very same moment, contributed much to its dissolution. Each success proved to be a failure. 
such outcomes aren't particular to Churchill. They are the very stuff of history. When everything is looking good and going as, it, as we hope, inevitably thing, uh, events turn out to diverge and cherished expectations fail. New contingencies open up, leaving historical actors dazed, unsure how they had arrived where they found themselves. Now, Boris Johnson is proposing Churchill as a man of destiny. The only politics which can follow from the fanciful, fanciful conviction that one man makes history is to surrender to those self-same men of destiny. In Britain in the early 20th century, there was a name for this process. It was known in political circles as Caesarism, in which the appointed men of destiny veered between embracing a populism from below and at the same time installing a hard version of authority from above. To be conscripted into such a politics, then as now, is to mortgage the collective destinies of the people to the ambitions of the men who swoon at the prospect that one day they'd be masters of their own rhetorical intemperance. In the period from 1914 to 1945 in Britain, there are a number of self-perceived, self-proclaimed, commonly uh, distrusted men of destiny. Preeminently, David Lloyd George, the great liberal, Oswald Mosley, who ended up a fascist, and Winston Churchill. They all regarded party allegiance as a secondary matter. They had all started off as a kind of popular radical on the liberal left or the left wing um, before settling on the right. It was never clear in any particular moment who or where, where they would end up or who they would end up in alliance with. <clears throat> in 1917, the energetically conservative Morning Post had identified Winston Churchill as a floating kidney in the body politic. <laughs> Although such terms are foreign to Johnson, the same preoccupation, Caesarism, underwrite Johnson's interpretation of Winston Churchill. Churchill in this scenario was, was propelled by the belief in his own greatness, perpetually endeavouring to trans, transcend the humdrum business of political life. Curiously, st strategic and ethical objectives were, in Johnson's vision, secondary for Churchill. For Boris Johnson, following his reading of Churchill, if allegiance and principle can't explain the deepest motivations of politics, then he decides that the defining criterion for political practice must be understood as rhetoric. This is, for Boris Johnson, largely what politics is, or largely what politics becomes if the men of destiny rule. He quotes Winston Churchill, I do not care so much for, for the principles I advocate as for the impression that my words will produce. You can imagine Boris Johnson, his eyes falling upon that, <laughs> opening wide and his pulse racing. So this is Churchill. This is what most distinguishes his, his political thought. He was in, the, in thrall to the power, not of political principle, but of political rhetoric. Johnson's argument is emphatic. Rhetoric, capturing the imagination of the masses, is all. Principle 
be damned. As Johnson tells the story of Winston Churchill, we are obliged to ask the extent to which the, the coming man of destiny, Boris, as they call him, glimpses on the horizon his own political future. Now, such thinking is not only a riposte to determinist philosophies of history, which preclude human intervention. It conveys more profoundly the prospect that with the correct willpower, individuals can overcome history. This is what Churchill means in this period, that individuals can, exceptional individuals, can overcome history, take charge of history, and bend it to their purposes. It's an intoxicating possibility, gliding over inherited political differences. Something like this is evident in the collective mentalities of those who actively embrace the intransigent forms of Brexit in Britain today, imagining the 40 years or more of history can, in a single blow, be transcended. And as the mainstream politicians in Britain flounder and are desperate and haven't got an idea in their head, the idea summoned up here that a great man can seize a moment becomes very important indeed. As bafflement descends and political inst institutions appear to offer ever-diminishing scope for human intervention, the memory of Churchill in 1940 proffers the hope, at least, that human will has the power to undo what history has bequeathed, anointing a chosen individual with a mantle of destiny. Now, I won't say much about this, but behind all this lies the fact that um, Britain's, the recent history of Britain's relationship with the European Union have generated new and charged conceptions of what England is and where it is to be located. Currently, England is a nation in slow-motion disintegration. The governing class acts as a passive spectator in the very drama it unveiled, mesmerised by the events in which it is caught. Those charged with governing the nation watch as, as, um, as political life descends into historical paralysis. Since becoming Prime Minister in 2016, Theresa May has stumbled from one crisis to the next and continues to do so. Like a deadly serious game of pass the parcel, she ends up holding the poison chalice, vainly looking about her for a colleague to lend a hand. <laughs> her political life hangs by a thread. Her potential successors are content to bide the time. Day by day, the public world unravels. No one in authority has a clue what practically can be done. Johnson explained that what prompted him to write the biography of Winston Churchill was, on, uh, was the fact that Churchill's memory was on the point of vanishing. Vanishing? <laughs> Go into any bookstore in London or any cinema and Churchill is all over the place. <clears throat> the authority of mythic Churchill deepens as the idea of England becomes ever more precarious. The two are connected. Churchill has become a more potent symbol week by week, week, by week in these Brexit times. When he enters a story, 
we can be sure the faith in England's exceptionalism will, pre will preside. Generally, his arrival is, is underwritten by confidence that the empire stood as a unilateral medium for the benediction of others. Repetition of Churchill as the nation's story runs deep. It's impervious to cri critique, deaf to all sceptics. The more repetitious, repetitious it becomes, the more it succumbs to its own logic, the less it connects with historical realities. In this telling, the Churchill story, the Churchill myth, evis eviscerates thought. The, the past is acted out, to use a psychoanalytical term. It's acted out like a neurosis, with no need for reflection. Myth outpaces history. The story tells itself. Churchill becomes as much a feature of England's landscape as the M25, a very boring motorway, or the seaside in winter. It's how it is. Today's Churchill speaks from, the, from, the, from his grave to those white English who feel that somewhere, sometime, they had surrendered their historical patrimony. The, the symbolic antidote to this social apprehension takes the phantasmatic form of Churchill. History in this scenario is in the grasp of Boris Johnson, in the grasp of the militant Brexiteers. We need only listen to Boris Johnson and Winston Churchill. This, is, this will give you a clue to his prose style. And, you, know, you wonder what he learnt at Eton and Oxford University. <laughs> that was why he, Churchill, was associated with, with so many epic cock-ups because he dared to try and change the entire shape of history. He was the man who burst the cabin door and tried to wrestle the controls of the stricken plane. He was the large protruding, protruding nail on which destiny snagged her coat. <laughs> well, who knows. When I indicated that the Churchill story of May 1940 has the capacity to tell itself, the formulation catches something of an otherwise inexplicable persistence of collective mythic memory, dominant for long periods in Britain, but never ever quite extinguished. The compulsive repetition of the dominating memories suggests an unwilling acting out, such that it is the narrative, it's the story which leads the storyteller. <clears throat> England's exceptionalism takes command. There still persists a puzzling faith in the notion that the history of England has been peculiarly immune to the existential darkness which shadows modern selfhood. Now, whether anyone actually believes this or not, I really don't know, as literal truth. But its <coughs> echoes persist in the public intellectual world of contemporary Britain. The voice is heard at different volumes and in different frequencies. It's not restricted to self-evidently ideological evocations of the nation's past. Its sensibilities infiltrate the historiography where we might least expect them to surface. They recur in political life. They constitute a barely conscious substratum of popular experience. They flare into the light of day in, I have to say it, in tabloid headlines. They turn on, a, on an attachment to the protocols of an English fundamentalism. When critics 
point to the dark matter in the nation's past, to the depredations of colonialism, to enslavement, to the racialization of others, a reflex is triggered as if the lifeblood of English selfhood is on the point of destruction. It's a refrain in national life which occasionally slips out of sight, but it never entirely goes away. Now, Winston Churchill, on the underground, in Dark as Dark, is a faultless reenactment of mythic 1940, dressed up for own times. It doesn't miss a trick. In some respects, the, the deepest assumption of the film are very close indeed to those um, advocated by Boris Johnson. It evokes an imaginary England alone, which is consonant with the reveries of contemporary Brexiteers. But this is not to say, I'm not trying to say the darkest hour is Brexit propaganda. I don't believe that at all. But the shared assumptions need to be brought out. And it's extremely interesting if we look at the director of Darkest Hour. I know a, a guy called Joe Wright. I know nothing about his politics. Wright seems an entirely unlikely proponent for an idealised antiquarian England. He directed the film Atonement, based on the Ian McCune novel, Anna Karenina, based on Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> Uh, he was tutored at the, at the Anna Share Theatre School, a popular communi community school in North London. Uh, he left his formal education uh, with no uh, qualifications. He ended up at art school where he embraced the Amagam. In the 1990s, he found himself at Oil Factory, a music video production company on the Caledonian Road. He's married to a daughter of a celebrated sitar player, Ravi Shankar. There is nothing blimpish about this. There's nothing which you'd think would attract him to Winston Churchill or to mythic Churchill. He is 20th, 21st century metropolitan hip. You, I can see how he dresses. I can see his facial hair. I can see the skinny jeans. Unlike Johnson, there is no re reason to suppose that he set out on ideological grounds to win viewers to this position or that. But that's exactly the point. Notwithstanding his personal investments, the moment they started telling the story of May 1940, with Winston Churchill at the centre, the story begins to tell itself. It takes over. The story does the work for them. From the first shots, we know the script. Churchill growls and huffs and puffs. By sheer force of character, 90 minutes or so later, he triumphs. The House of Commons breaks into relieved uproar. The nation has been saved. The popcorn's finished. And the film comes to its end. Reassuring us that with the proper determination, history can be ours. Be ours. Yet this is built on an entire paradox. If these days, a desire to recuperate May 1940 is, in, is propelled in part by the wish to, to catch sight of the efficacy of individual human will in shaping history, the 
actual telling of the story attests to the contrary impetus, to the power of the past in organizing the meaning of the stories we choose to tell. So it's just, it is a strange paradoxical confirmation of the power of history, not of the power of the individual. And Churchill comes out of it all at the end as, surprise, surprise, a mortal. He isn't a god after all. <coughs> now, in the myth, I will finish shortly. In the myth, Churchill becomes a means for the English to think who they are. Or I should say more accurately, Churchill becomes a means for the English to stop thinking who they are. But there's a strange, what we see in Boris Johnson is an unexpected reconfiguration of the Churchill myth. And what becomes central to this is the man of destiny. Johnson rearranges the basic elements of the story. Churchill does not represent, as he has done for the past 60 or 70 years, Churchill does not represent the state. Churchill is a man of destiny, a freelance man of destiny, who happened by good fortune to be in charge, to find himself in charge of the state. But this is a Churchill unconcerned with political brokerage. He is his own politics. His primary political resource is his own rhetoric. This is Winston Churchill writing to his mother in 1897, when he was a young man, before he had embarked on politics. It's a strange letter for a young man to write to his mum, but never mind. Of all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as a gift of oratory. He who enjoys it wields a power more durable than that of a great king. He is an independent force, abandoned by his party, betrayed by his friends, stripped of his offices. He can still command a power that is formidable. I and mean, that is like a recipe for the future Caesar, who Churchill was already imagining could be his, and indeed for the future man of destiny, Boris Johnson. The fate of Brexit is yet to be resolved, but the Brexitization of the past is already upon us, and this should worry historians. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.